Voltron will be back after these messages. And now, back to Voltron, defender of the universe. Welcome, Voltron fans. This is Mark Morell, your host for Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. I'm here for another exciting interview with somebody who worked on the original show, Voltron Defender of the Universe, back in 1984. So I'll bring on my co-host, Greg Tyler. Welcome, Greg. Hello, Mark. Hello, Voltron uh, viewers and listeners across the universe. It's great to be back with you, especially with this fine person who uh, we had the pleasure to speak with at VoltCon 2022. He's now joining us on Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. Mark, you want to uh, introduce our special guest? Yes. So we are talking to Steve Sterling, the producer of Voltron Defender of the Universe in 84 through 86. And he's also a principal of I.M. Sterling International Media and Management. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Really, really impressive what you guys are doing. So uh, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. Yes, very yeah, much that, so. That time, the time at VoltCon was just so incredible. I mean, on my end, it was sort of humbling to see, you know, what's really come of it all. But um, just the the level of fan enthusiasm and, um, you know, just that the legacy of it all was really, really impressive. And uh, and the authenticity of it was very cool. Yeah, we, we uh, had only dreamed way back when of there actually being a Voltron convention. So <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. And you're you're 10 years in, right? Yes, yes, we are. We're we're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary towards the end of this year. And of course, at VoltCon 2023, we want to make a big impact with that 10th anniversary. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah that's yep. great. As well, you should. Yeah, that's cool. I, I wanted to, to go back to what Greg had started with you at VoltCon 2022, some of the things that you guys had managed to talk about. Uh, by the way, that video that was there uh, was uh, recorded by Pete White, and we want to thank Pete for providing that. Yeah. And, uh, also, uh, Greg, why don't you lead in with one of those questions that you had asked at Volcon? Oh gosh. Well, um, let's. So for for the many people who uh, uh, had not been at Volcon. Uh, if you were to introduce yourself to uh, to Voltron fans around the world, uh, how how would you uh, what would you uh, you know tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm um, you know th this far down the road, I can say I've sort of uh, demonstrated I'm a I'm a serial entrepreneur in entertainment technology. Um, I was. Um, always interested in technology um, anywhere along the way, not, not so proficient at it, but very curious about it and, you know, what, what people can do with things. And I did find my way into the entertainment business. I um, went to college at Marquette university in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and then uh, went on to New York city to try to, you know, find a career in um, at that time, television <clears throat> and um, really wanted to be in entertainment. Um, although it didn't, uh, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so New York was closer than LA, and it never occurred until I got into New York that New York was mostly about um, news and sports and soap operas and not that much about entertainment. So I landed in the wrong place, actually. But uh, but I did get in. I got I got myself into ABC um, Television Network. Um, oddly, as a revenue analyst, the most boring job in the world, <clears throat> um, but was able to work my way across to the production side and uh, became a production manager um, in the sports department. Uh, then I was um, ultimately became head of worldwide operations for ABC Sports and moved over to news 
and said, you know, I just got to get myself into entertainment. <laughs> so anyways, I had to make the big jump to, um, to LA. And um, from there, I was really banging around just trying to be a producer. Um, and that's sort of what ultimately led me to, to get on with uh, Voltron. So um, it's um, now I'm really involved in a number of different companies. I've got um, three different, uh, I'm on a uh, co-inventor on three different software patents, none of which have made me any money, by the way, um, <laughs> but um, all interesting developments along the way. And um, I'm very involved right now in um, holograms or what's being called holograms, <clears throat> their projection or, or uh, display holograms. So I'm involved in a company in Amsterdam uh, that manufactures uh, display holograms. I'm involved in a company um, out of Houston, Texas called Base Hologram. <clears throat> We've done um, a Whitney Houston hologram concert, uh, Maria Callas and Roy Orbison, Buddy Holly, pre-pandemic, pretty much put a dent in everything, but uh, that's all getting back up. Um, so I typically get involved, you know, I'm I'm not the zero to 40 guy um, in, in entertainment. I'm, I'm the guy who, I can see somebody or find somebody that's got something underway and they sort of gotten themselves from zero to 40. And then I can, you know, sort of help them um, uh, get themselves together from intellectual property rights, uh, distribution, um, you know, different sort of, you know, financial considerations and stuff, and then sort of get them to the next level. So um, I've got four different companies that I'm involved in that do various things. I'm in a partner with a, a couple guys out of London that do very high tech magic uh, with holograms and lasers and put a touring show together for them. Uh, the company out of Amsterdam, uh, based hologram. And my my main company, I am Sterling International Media and Management, is just more of an umbrella um, in which I can sort of you know pull in things if I see something that I think has a really good opportunity and um, get on with it. So that's why I sort of say I'm a a serial entrepreneur in a way because I we'll go find something or see something or find there's a market for something and just go, you know, try to meet the people who are involved in something and see if I can um, get involved with them and help them along. So. Um, so you must be very active in reading on cutting edge uh, entertainment technologies and, and just technologies and how they might apply to entertainment. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I try to be, you know, it's, um, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's the most exciting time right now because just, you know, what used to take a year and a half or two to show itself is taking like three to six months. Um, that's good and bad. Um, but, um, you know, and I, uh, a lot of people in my peer group is, you know, that sort of stayed as producers, um, if they made it through the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, and then through the pandemic, you know, there was, and I find this to be true in a lot of situations, there was, um, uh, you know, there was sort of that group that would say whether it was the financial crisis or even the pandemic, like, oh my gosh, I don't know what's happening. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what I'm going to do. And then there were the rest of us that said, oh my God, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and so you sort of start saying, okay, well, what is that? Where are we now? What's happening? So um, you know, I tend to, um, I, I mean, the good news and bad news is I have a short attention span. Um, I'm, uh, I, I read a lot of different things. I read Aviation Week and Space Technology just recreationally, but it's amazing wow. how much stuff you see in something like that. That's like, oh, wow, that thing I read about four years ago is now in my kitchen. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, even though it's, it's, you know, more technology or aviation type stuff. Um, and uh, I read a lot of different things, but what I really, I've just always loved entertainment. 
Um, I was um, had a long run in the music business um, as a sort of an executive producer, more just packaging things, acquiring rights to things. Um, I cannot hum a tune to save my life. I cannot read music. I cannot play an instrument. But I had a really good run, 15, 18 years um, in the music business. And it's it's as much about, you know, sort of getting in the mix with creative people um, and really um, just, just in, in a way, I think I probably spent a fair amount of my time um, trying to, you know, establish and maintain the environment in which the creative process takes place. You know, I don't write music, but I, you know, I was able to, you know, one another company I was working for acquired the rights to um, lots of different concerts, um, doing TV rights deals, uh, web wireless deals and stuff like that. Because I do, most of what I do is I acquire rights and then I do all the deals, uh, you know, through all the different channels of distribution, because that's where the money is. Um, and even back, mm -hmm. and it, it, it'll bring us back to Voltron and you guys will get a hold of me if I get too far afield or, um, uh, you know, you want to um, get onto something else. And we'll certainly get onto lots of Voltron. But what was really interesting is when I, when I moved to LA um, from New York, um, I just left New York and, um, and went to LA. And it was, you know, it was, it, I mean, it was funny because I was at ABC News um, and I didn't really, you know, news was very interesting and I'm a news junkie, but it was as a career, it was just a, it was a life killer. You know, everybody I knew were either, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people were, you know, was rife with alcoholism and substance abuse, multiple marriages, all kinds of things, because it was a, such a stressful environment. It's a, news is a vocation. Oh, yeah. If you, if you don't really love it, it'll eat you alive. And um, I, I watched a lot of that. And I was just, I just liked entertainment because it was more fun. But anyways, when I got out to LA, I, I was lucky enough to get on a, a show called um, You Ask For It. Because I had been at ABC Sports and News, it, they were very post-production heavy. Um, I got on as a post-production supervisor, which was sort of, again, that sort of the guy in the neck of the funnel where, you know, everything has to come through there eventually. And um so that really got me going. It was another intense thing. It was, uh, you know, they did 175 half hours on Monday through Friday. Um, so it was quite a pace. And um, what I realized is I, you know, as I got to know more people in LA, just a lot of people out and around, like, you know, I have an idea, I have an idea, I have an idea. And nobody really knew what to do when they had an idea, even in LA. Um, and um, so it was someplace where, uh, it was a it was a great place to have a lot of ideas, but it was a really hard place to have a lot of ideas because every everybody had an idea in L.A. And um, I used to uh, call it was it was a land of a thousand maybes um, from a, if you were trying to you know get an idea going forward on your own. And so I had actually um, had always been interested in animation. It was just even as a kid with my parents, you know, eight millimeter camera, I was you know, editing. And I, you know, did one of those little things where you sit in a box and it looks like you go down the driveway. And, you know, I did all mm -hmm. kinds of, and even through college, I uh, was doing different animated stuff and just never gave it a thought of like, gee, could I ever do this professionally? Um, I was much more thinking, oh, I got to get in, got to get a job, you know, real job. And um, was trying to do it in, in the television business at the time. And um, so, but I said, ah, the heck with, I, I just was with so many people say, oh, I have an idea. I don't know what to do with it. And, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I was somebody who said, I have an idea and I'm going to try to do something with it. And so I came up with this um, idea, an animated idea, a show called Sharpie, the Golden Sage. 
And um, Sharpie was the Sharpay dog. I don't know if you remember that dog. We just had all these folds on it, just this layers and layers of skin. But he had yeah. this magic medallion um, that could, you know, um, turn wrong into right. And, you know, it was a you know superhero kind of thing. Um, I even had a soft, soft sculpture of the character made. I hired a long retired uh, animator from Disney to, you know, taking my own money and putting this into Wow. stuff to to do some of the original um character sketches and stuff wow worked with a writer come up with some of the you know the basic storylines and stuff and i was all over the place and i could not get arrested i mean with <laughs> and um you know and and then here i am walking around with it that, that dog was like you know it was like two and a half feet tall big one everybody wanted to hug the dog but nobody wanted to buy the dog. And um, mm -hmm. so here I am, you know, I'm walking around, you know, going into meetings with a, you know, a stuffed animal under my arm. And um, anyway, the, the, the long and the short of it is I got a call from somebody that I had crossed paths with at You Asked For It, a guy named Tom Batista, um, mm -hmm. who was involved um, with Ted Koppler uh, at the time. And Tom was a former CBS executive, amazing guy, really incredible, top-notch professional TV industry executive. Um, and he called me and he said, he said, Steve, and, and we had known some people in common from New York because he was based in New York and, um, you know, in the industry. And he called me and said, you know, Steve, we don't want to do your Sharpie the Golden Sage thing, but we have another project um, that we need to bring some people on to and we're a bit behind schedule. And, um, you know, would you come back and talk to us about this project called Voltron? And I was like, oh, Voltron, I'm sure. And anyways, that's what got it all going. And <laughs> Interestingly, again, because of my, you know, post-production stuff and, um, and you know, wanting to be creative and contribute something and sort of help direct stuff, um, I, I think I w interviewed everybody, you know, from Ted to Peter Keefe to, um, you know, I don't know, three or four people uh, in a matter of four hours and started the next day. Wow. And um, mm -hmm. so for me, it was like, you know, I'm like, wow, I'm going to work on an animated project. And it was a very different approach to an animated project because they were acquiring um, existing stuff, um, existing footage. Um, and so that right away sort of, you know, led us all, Peter Keefe, you know, really leading the charge with Ted sort of, you know, putting the whole thing together and then Peter really um, leading everything. Um you know, led us to a lot of discussions of, you know, okay, we, you know, Ted was the visionary and, uh, you, you know, you guys know the whole story of, you know, Ted basically was originally trying to come up. He was, he was well-recognized in this small area of the industry of being an innovator on the local station level. Mm -hmm. um, and at their station in St. Louis, he was uh, innovating with local programming where most people were just sort of feeding off the tube of their networks and then filling in with other stuff. Ted was like, no, I'm going to make some original things. I'm going to really demonstrate. And a lot of the stations said, oh, don't waste money on original things locally. You don't make any money. And he really, he really showed people how it could be done. It was really impressive. So had, had you ever rubbed elbows with uh, Bob Costas? Over the years, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because yeah. he had gotten involved with World Events 80 back when, when they were doing that original programming yes. for, for St. Louis. Yeah. And he also had his voice in one of the Voltron episodes as well. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. he he uh, he did a voice in one of the 1990s uh, episodes. Yeah. yeah. I didn't realize yeah. that. Wow, that's hilarious. Yeah, yeah because some will mm -hmm. say that 
it, I won't say Bob Costas got a start um, there, right. but he, 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 it was a great stepping stone for him. Yeah. Now, now you had mentioned that uh, Voltron's a different kind of animation than, than was traditional for the time. Were you familiar with the industry doing that sort of thing up to that point? You know, there were uh, you know, Star Blazers and Astro Boy. And, Battle and of the Planets. Yeah, Battle of the Planets and various other things. So you were you familiar with the, the concept by that point? Or was that fairly new? Okay, okay. Yeah, well, funnily okay. enough, the, the guy who had you ask for it, which was a, at that time, that's what was called a reality show. Obviously, the word reality is I'm taking <laughs> quite a few turns. Since then. Yeah. People would write in and say, I heard there's elephants in Thailand that play soccer. And then somebody would say, well, you know, you ask for it. And they would go off and we'd go off and shoot it. Um, but um, funnily enough, the same guy, Sandy Frank, uh, who who was um, couldn't be more at the opposite end of the spectrum than Ted, um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, he was amazing, by the way, incredible, incredible, incredible. Um, and um, but he had Battle of the Planets, um, mm -hmm. so I was sort of familiar with that. He, he had you asked for it, name that tune, uh, ultimately, eventually, Battle of the Planets and stuff, but uh, more as a distributor. Um, and and we knew then that you know, some people in the industry would call it, oh, it's the clutch cargo approach to um animation you know there was a guy with you know a mouth that would mm -hmm. move like this and whatever they were saying the mouth would just keep moving like this until they stopped and then it would stop and it was that was you know and 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 you know we were sort of around you know the circles relegated oh yes it's going to be the one of those japanese overdubs um mm -hmm. you know and and we were going to sort of use the, you know the clutch cargo uh approach clutch cargo being this other animated character from way back Right. And, and to to those who are listening or watching us, if you're not familiar with Clutch Cargo, um, a more modern version of that might be from Conan O'Brien when he was on NBC late night with Conan O'Brien and he would interview yeah. Bill Clinton or other celebrities <laughs> where they have a static <laughs> photograph and add a little uh, real mouth with a, the, yeah, a voice thank impression you. Thank artist. you, Greg. Uh, yeah, thank yeah. you for filling it in. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, but anyways, it was, you know, it, it was a whole interesting scenario because it 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 could well have been, um, you know, the Japanese overdub, mm -hmm. um, but nobody was really going to settle for that. And, um, you know, Peter, um, with, with various writers along the way, and it was a, that was a sort of a whole interesting dynamic in itself, uh, because it, in the early stages, of course, they, they were trying to get people with credentials, right? I mean, that's everybody... It, whatever you're doing, you want to have people with credentials around you and mm -hmm. no more uh, place than Los Angeles and, and Hollywood. Um, and so uh, the writers really had, um, you know, a lot of credentials, um, but they were, you know, I say this lovingly, um, they were, they were older, older guys. Um, like Jameson Brewer. Jameson Brewer. And um, so they were on and, um, it, 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 you know, it was very interesting. You know, Peter managed it beautifully. He was an extraordinary guy, Peter Keith. And, um, but it was beginning to show that there was sort of this older, uh, I guess, sort of grounding to, you know, what you would say and how you would do it and stuff like that. And so there was more of a discussion that, that really got to the point where, um, we could say, listen, let's think of this really differently. Let's pull this all apart. We have an inventory of scenes. So we were we were getting the footage over from Japan. And as you started looking at everything and say, well, 
I, I have an inventory of scenes and I, I had worked in New York in soap operas and I was sort of familiar with this idea of, listen, there's the living room, you know, there's the dining room, there's, you know, there, there are these scenes and every character over a period of time only ever shows up in those scenes. It becomes a universe. And it really got to the point where we said, you know, we could, um, we could, we could manipulate the movement of Mao's right now because we had such good control of, you know, slow motion, reverse motion and stuff. And it really was, hey, we have an inventory of scenes now, write what you want. And, you know, obviously stay within the characters and the storyline, but write what you want. And we can probably make any story work. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when worse came to worse, we'd take a cutaway of something just to get past something or onto something else. And um, if that way of thinking, that very sort of nonlinear way of thinking um, to me uh, among a small group in uh, working on Voltron are the ones that breathe this other life into something of this footage that was just coming over from Japan that could well have just been overdubbed. And while they were speaking Japanese, we would have put, you know, English in their mouths and, you know, it, it, it might have done okay, but it never, ever would have become what it became. And, um, and the other thing that I think is, um, to me, you know, it was a seminal moment. And again, I, I will credit, you know, Peter Keefe with just about everything was this idea that um, we weren't going to do a cartoony soundtrack. I mean, yes, there were, you know, cartoony being that, whoa, you know, it was always constant, whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, you know, we had that. Um, but uh, between the music of John Peterson, mm -hmm. who's amazing in his own right, um, mm -hmm. and, um, and that, um, the, the sort of voice of Voltron, um, it was it was melodramatic and it was it was sort of soap operish like, but it drew you in, you know, as you guys will attest, um, yeah. because it's like oh something's happening here. So we were we were able to distinguish ourselves really early on, um, and it was um, you know a delightful shock to all of us. It was like oh my, you know, because of course uh, Tom uh, would would come back and say, "Hey, wow, look at these ratings. We're doing really well." Yeah. Um, Dad, sponsors want in. <laughs> yeah, Tom Batista was. Um, uh, I, I don't know how formal a business partner he was with Ted, but again, Ted was smart enough and clever enough to get this guy, you know, former CBS uh, television executive, uh, very um, very wired into syndicated television and sponsorships and all those relationships and. Um, and again, I think Ted had to sell himself into this guy uh, because I think it was a bit of like, you know, he he knew who Ted was because he knew local station, local market television. But, uh, you know, um, Tom Batista brought a, a whole other level of business approach, distribution and sponsorship uh, to Ted's vision for, you know, I want to make an, as an original production as I possibly can. This whole thing that helped uh, Voltron capture lightning in a bottle, right? You you had mentioned some of those elements and the fact that they set themselves apart from other cartoons of the time, and that in order to make these ratings and and get all these sponsors and all this merchandise going and all that kind of stuff, it really came down to all that hard work that you guys were doing in the, in the the front lines there, you know, in the in the trenches, and and making sure that that stuff comes out on time. You know, the sheer mention of the word time, Mark, sends a shiver down my spine. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was brutal. It was really brutal. And, um, you know, I mean, listen, 
it's it's very you know the entertainment business is very seductive it's very easy to come mm -hmm. off like you're saving lives or you're curing cancer oh my god you know and um but it's fun um it's really fun if, if you can get away with you know making a living doing it it's I, I can't believe i have all this time honestly but yeah it was really really brutal because um you know back in the day um they, they got off to a late start um sponsors didn't know what to make of it they were coming late so you know just the financing of it and all that stuff was mm -hmm. everything was late 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 and there is a tendency i'm on a project right now this hologram dinosaur project where the you know the the original funders and stuff like oh yeah well you know we'll get it going and the producers will fix it all from there so it just all the time gets compressed and um we were I think we counted something like 34 days straight um, in the various studios um, just wow. to try to catch up on the delivery schedule because it's, it has a voracious appetite. And what would happen was, and you guys tell me if I'm getting too far in the weeds here, but no, you do an episode, you, you basically go through everything, you get the footage over. Everybody'd have to look at the footage. You know, uh, Peter and the writers were looking at all stuff all the time. Okay, what's the story here? They obviously had the translations and everything, so they knew where stuff was going. They knew all the character studies that the characters were, you know, well known out of Japan and were legendary in their own right there. And um, and now it was like, okay, how do we shape it? We we're obviously clusing a few things together uh, at that. Um, and so um, it it just it takes a lot of time. And so, but what's happening is. You got to make delivery, and um, you know television back then was extremely seasonal, right? If you didn't make fall premiere week in syndication, you could just say, "Okay, good. I guess we'll try next year." It wasn't like, "Oh, we'll start a few weeks late." It was like, "Oh, it's you know, it's too late." Then you've missed you've missed the wave of audiences and and all that promotion that goes with it. Um, so that was really um, the challenge of it all. What you know, could could we even make it? And uh, we were fearful that we weren't going to make it because we were delivering five episodes at a time, Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. um, they were running in the mornings for you know kids before they went to school, and they were running in the afternoons when the kids came home from school. And you you know you get a double run on the day, and it's a you know the whole economics of that is what makes it work. And um, we were really, really behind and we were just like, how do, and it was like, you know, being on the hamster treadmill, it's like, okay, okay, we, we got those five out because what happens is you schedule weeks in advance uh, to send your episodes up on a satellite and every station, you know, across the country um, has their schedule. And they got their downlink coming down and they've got people in their videotape room at that time saying, OK, well, Voltron's coming in the five episodes of Voltron, which, again, five episodes in a half hour, two and a half hours of Voltron are coming in. You know, it, it could be from, you know, one to three thirty in the afternoon or it could be from midnight to two thirty and then at night. Um, whatever that schedule was, because everybody was feeding their show to the local stations. The local station's obligation was to make sure they were recording those episodes so they could load them in their computer. They could turn them around. And if you missed your satellite feed, it was, I mean, you were hated by the stations. And mm -hmm. you did it a couple of okay. times and they were like, you know what, you guys are more trouble than you're worth. Um, mm. So it was, it was, it was definitely high anxiety. And, um, you know, if you go through the process, getting the footage in, looking at the footage, sorting out the storyline, the editorial, going into the recording studio with all the voices. And we were recording, uh, we weren't even recording to picture, which was another thing that was quite bizarre for a lot of people. We were recording to, to time, stopwatches. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that in a minute if you'd like. 
And um, we were just wailing on stuff. Uh, and, and we would literally turn around, uh, take those recordings, uh, take them into editing, um, you know, clean them up in audio editing and then take them into video editing and just start laying them in. And we had edit editors, you know, day and night. We were working like two and three shifts of editors. And then the few of us were overseeing the two and three shifts of editors. Um, mm -hmm. And then we'd move into, you know, final mixing at that time. One of the selling points, again, Ted and Tom were, were all over this, um, believe it or not, broadcast television at that time was for the first time uh, going stereo. Mm -hmm. It's a big right. deal. I mean, you laugh yeah. at it now. It's like, really? That was a big yeah. deal? It was, yeah. it was not quite going from black and white to color or, you know, from standard definition to high definition, but it was pretty close. But the stations wanted to advertise that, you know, now in stereo, you know, and there weren't a lot of yep. shows that were going in stereo. So we were we were behind enough and late enough that we could do it in stereo. Um, and um, and so that was part of, you know, what we were setting up to do. So that was something new and different. And um, you'd go in the mixing room, you would basically get all the shows edited. You know, I would follow my shows into the final mix and we were mixing all through the night um and um they they came to sort of hate me well they didn't hate me eventually but you know i would say you know because we'd be in these mixing rooms where people were mixing you know albums and you know big stuff and big speakers and it was just incredible and then i you know i came in with these little you know six inch oval speakers that you could have in your car and put them in a little wood box and put them up I'm trying to get, put them up on the, you know, left and right of this audio board and say, okay, great. Play me the show through there. And the mixing guy would be like, what, you know, why are you making us do this? I'm like, cause this is what it's going to sound like at home. You know, yeah. we did all yeah. the multi-tracks, right. Sound effects galore, John Mortarotti, the, the, the editors, you know, the, the audio editors and stuff were amazing. Um, and, uh, and that was another thing about, you know, Voltron was um, how real could we make it sound? You yeah, know, we we want to make real sound effects when they happened, and really uh, between the music and the sound effects and the grunts and groans uh, that were actually the voice actors, um, we were trying to make it sound real. And then you know I was the guy that said, "Okay, play it to me through these six-inch speakers." Um, but such an important thing that I think gets overlooked is is yes. not everyone had the latest and greatest stereo system because stereo was so new. Yeah. You, you were the beginnings of a UX developer. You were you were trying to get that that user experience, you know, and you you wanted the, the people that were making it to know what it's actually going to sound like. I love that we all three are in industries where we all know what UX stands for. Yes. That's awesome. Yes, that is good. That is good. Um, but it's funny because, you know, again, just being around different areas of entertainment is, you know, in the end of the day, entertainment is say what you want. It's all about how it feels, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And how does it feel to you? Um, and, uh, and at the end of the day, big money entertainment is how does it feel to you the most amount of people I can possibly get? Because mm -hmm. um, that's ratings, it's, you know, it's impressions, it's, you know, users, it's all that stuff. And, um, and I, I have always wondered back then, you know, because the audio guys were always razzing me, oh, here comes Steve with his six inch speakers. And, but I always wondered, you know, did it make a difference when you got home? Did you hear something that if we had mixed it on these big speakers and sent it out, you might not have because it was lost in the mix? Yeah. Um, was it was the mix going to be sort of boomy when it got home because we were listening to big speakers and it sounded felt better that way? And 
Um, How's it going to sound 38 years later when we're we're putting those clips up on social media? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really true. It's really true. And so, um, you know, even the sound effects and the body blows and all that kind of stuff that we were doing. Um, and funnily enough, I, you guys probably know this, but, you know, we were, I remember when Tom came in and said, wow, it turns out we're getting a really good college audience, right? In the afternoons, mm -hmm. um, college kids were sitting in their dorms and they came across Voltron and because I contend, and, uh, you know, again, Bob Coppler could tell me I'm wrong or he, he heard it from Ted or somebody else could tell me I'm wrong. But um, I contend that because, it, well, first off, it was anime. And that was like really weird. You know, nobody and nobody even knew the word anime back then. Um, but it was something very different as a as a style of art uh, in animation. And, and again, that's an, another conversation. But but we came back, you know, he came back and said, you know, we're getting an amazing college audience. Um, and so it was a whole group in the afternoons in their dorm. We were running it for kids coming home from, you know, uh, elementary school um, and middle school. Um, and um and it was sort of like, you know, wow, isn't that great? And I was like, yeah, we can't do anything with that because nobody's going to switch advertisers to try to get college kids mm -hmm. uh, when we're really going after, you know, the, the younger kids in uh, in all the sponsorship deals and stuff. But but I contend that that was an example of a whole demographic of um, viewers um, sort of got turned on to it because of the way it sounded and the way it looked. Because for them, it was, you know, they were, uh, uh, you know, a, a college age group. They were seeing something that was, you know, sharp and really, you know, something happening. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't He-Man or She-Ra or, you know, any of the other robotic superhero um, stuff going on. So, OK, uh, so this is from one of the vehicle team episodes that you happen to, uh, to work on, Steve. Uh, and this is speaking to the whole stopwatch thing. So you can see here in this, this is from the uh, one of the last episodes of the vehicle uh, characters. Uh, it's an episode called The Drool's World Cracks Up. Mm -hmm. And you can see here, this is a robot speaking in a voiceover. And this particular line has a little bit more than one and a half seconds. And here's another robot speaking who has just a bit over two seconds. And then as you scroll down, you see the character Jeff and Cliff yes. and Crick. And they've got their different time codes. And, and, and this is what you meant, isn't it, about re recording yeah. the stopwatch? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Greg. It's such a great visual aid. Um, and it, it gets my heart racing again um, uh, over it all. But yeah, well, so so what was happening because we, and it's a crazy thing, but we knew we could, you know, the, the way you would really want to do this is you would want the voice actors acting to picture, right? They're seeing the character, they're watching the mouth move, they can emote with it and they can do stuff with it. But we didn't have time to do that. Um, it's because it, it's time consuming. And so, oh, I missed it. I got to do, you know, and so we were we were sort of, you know, not blind, but this was, you know, if you go back to like, you know, 1.50 plus, that little tiny yeah. plus meant you have a little bit of room, but <laughs> 2.1 seconds, you don't have any room. That's It's got to happen in that slot because that's the slot we have to fit it in. Um, and um, it, it took a bit for, you know, the voice actors. I mean, they were... I would say they were horrified. They were professionals and they were game for anything um, once they got in the room. But it was for them, it was like, you know, I, I mean, I do think there were a few of them that like were, 
who are these guys that they are doing this so back asswards? You know, what the heck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you have to just say, you know, come on, just you just trust me. I'll, you know, I'll show you when we when we get an episode done, I'll show it to you and you'll 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 see what we're doing. So they're oh, like, okay, man. you know, but we were, you know, we were recording, God, by that time, probably 10 episodes before they ever got to see one. Um, oh, and then once we could show them episodes, it, it changed a lot more of what they were doing. But um, it was, um, yeah, that's, that's, um, and we had stopwatches that went to the hundredth of a second. Um, wow. and so, you know, I would be there with, you know, I, I'd say to BJ Ward, you know, or, um, you know, who was playing one of these other characters, um, sure. you know, you gotta, you gotta do that in 2.7 seconds. And they didn't know what 2.7 seconds was, but they knew the line and they had a feeling for the line. And then I'd say, yeah, you know what, you're two tenths of a second off and to think about that, you'd say to a voice actor, and these people were really talented, um, really well-respected voice actors to say, yeah, that's really great, but you were two-tenths of a second off. Um, or you would say something, um, the, the you know, not my favorite one, but one of the weirdest things to tell a, a voice actor is um, you're two-tenths of a second short Um and um, I need you to say it, actually, you're two-tenths of a second long. I need you to say it with more energy and be two-tenths of a second shorter, right? Oh, it's like, my. you know, more energy, yeah. faster, less time. Um, and um, and it was just, it was really like coming in and just like, you know, playing a game of, you know, racquetball in a room. Like, whack, you know, just stuff started bouncing around. You get everybody in a groove, you know, yeah, you're two-tenths of a second fat. Okay, great. Um, yeah. and, and you were the, the dialogue that was going on, uh, and the pace of it, um, and what you were asking these people to do, but once they got in that groove, cause they were so professional, um, mm-hmm. and they were so committed and they got it, you know, that was the other thing. Again, you, you guys talk about these little things that make a difference. Um, that level of talent, uh, to bring in, um, was substantial and, um, and to have that level of talent. And then have them so willing um, to roll with the way this had to go to get done uh, was really impressive. It's yeah. and I, you know, my time with those people were some of my greatest times in the entertainment business with talent. Um, yeah. And they were all characters, and they they had they had all worked on shows. You know, I had known as a kid. Um, and um, they, you know, they were they were amazing. Yeah. You had mentioned before in in your previous interview with Greg, um, when it comes to uh, people finding out that there was a 125 episode contract here, all right, did that make a big difference to being able to get those types of voice actors? You know, I always have mixed feelings about telling the story because um, I, 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 I mean it um, well, but... Um, a bit of the history is that, yes, we were um, uh, initially, you know, of course, there was, it was, there was a budget. So, you know, what's uh, how much budget could be spent on, you know, on voice talent and um, and who are you going to get? Um, and so there was a bit of a question about that. And so we were doing auditions. You know, most actors, voice actors certainly will come in and they'll, they'll do a, what they call a side you know, it's a side of a script, a, a page or two for nothing. They'll come in and just audition in the hopes they get the gig. And um, so um, we had different voice actors come in. Uh, they were named, you know, they, they had great credentials and they came in and it was sort of like, 
Yeah. Okay. You know, there and and the question was, should we, you know, use use non-union voice actors um, if it was going to, you know, really save the budget? Um, and nobody was into that. Everybody knew that it was the the union act, voice actors were the cream of the crop. They had the most experience. They were very very professionals. Um, no offense to the people who hadn't turned fully professional yet, but it was just it was just going to be a non-starter. So. The, um, but what was interesting is when a few of them came in and it was like, yeah, okay, you know, and, um, you know, I had talked to one of the agents, you know, following up and, you know, what'd you think? And uh, I said, you know, it was, it was okay, but, you know, we're really under a lot of pressure here. We really need to get some, you know, really good people. And, I, you know, we're going to be doing like 125 half hours here. Um, and, uh, and, and so we really, and he said, 125 half hours, you never told me that. <laughs> and so and he said, I'm going to send them right back. I'll send them right back. And literally, because they're driving all around town, you know, going to auditions or hanging out at recording studios, waiting to see if they're going to get a Budweiser beer commercial or uh -huh. whatever. And um, so a couple of them came back. The agent called their, their folks and said, you know, go back and audition. This is, this, this is going to be a, a real series here. And um, they came back and it was a world of difference. And I then came to find and it makes sense when you think about it, but these voice actors, your vocal cords can only do so many things. Mm, I don't care yeah. who you are. And right. you, mm -hmm. these guys and, and women are working in a mirror and they're creating a range in their vocal cords, right? That they can do stuff, you know, hype, you know, the pidge voice, right? Mm -hmm. um, low tour, you just, you look at the, just look at the, uh, the frequency range of the voices of the characters um, and so everybody had a range, everybody had a character. And what was really happening was these voice actors, experiences they were, they knew they had different characters. They had different things that they could do with their vocal cords um, and even different characters that they had created in the mirror. And, and these were top level professionals working it. They were really working their, you know, their vocal cords and, uh, and their acting chops. And so um, they weren't going to give up you know, a hard-earned vocal cord character um, for, you know, a one-off. And so mm -hmm. when they came back, it's like, wow, you know, this many episodes, that that could be a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And yeah. uh, the, the Christmas presents I got from them were really impressive. Um, mm -hmm. But but yeah, that was really it. And, and they came in and they delivered some of their best voices. And some of them would come back, uh, even come in, they were so into it, they'd come in and sort of, you know, sell us characters you know hey i delivered this I, I i developed this other guy you know and this other voice and you know i could do this if you have somebody you know you're we'll get a character for it and we you know we make notes or we'd make a recording give it to peter and say hey listen you know um lenny weinrib came in with this uh this mm -hmm. other voice he thought would be interesting if you have a you know if, if there's a new character coming in or something um so they were they were totally in it to win it and it was a one of my great joys of life working with those people because it was um you know, it was not, you, you could easily think that nobody was caring about the acting because it was all about the stopwatch and it was all about getting stuff turned around. Um, but um, when we got in those rooms, you know, in the in the recording booth um, with them and they had their scripts and they got rolling, um, it was really, really special. It was really, it was really something. And um, I, you know, for that time, I just, I, I just loved it. And you know, the, the, some of the fun things like, you know, Michael Bell, and maybe you guys heard this story, but he was, he yeah. was the voice of butter uh, in the old margarine commercials. Yeah. It would be yeah. Yeah. Par Parquet. It was, and, yeah. uh, 
he had a, you know, you just hear different stories as they were talking to each other. And he was, um, uh, he had a place in um, uh, Palace Verdes um, called Butter Estates. And then he had, he had a place in Santa Barbara called Rancho Residuales. I mean, was, and they, you know, these guys were, you know, they were great fun. And I, and I also remember, uh, it's probably tales out of school, but um, well, it is tales out of school, but I always, you know, LA was such a car town, right? Everybody had, you know, what car were you driving and stuff. And, you know, we'd pull into the studio and, you know, these guys would be coming in like at that time, like, you know, K cars or Dodge darts or, you know, just, just really plain cars. And I was like, I know what these guys are making from our show and I know what they've done and what they must be making. And I've learned that Michael Bell has, you know, Rancho Residuales. And I was always just sort of, you know, I, I thought, well, I'm not going to ask, but, you know, but anyway, so I'm standing around, literally standing around the water cooler in the kitchen in the recording studio. And I think it was Lenny Weinrib talking to Neil Ross, I think. And, um, and they're just talking and uh, Neil says, uh, so Lenny, you still have your Bentley? Oh no! I got rid of that Bentley. I got a Rolls, and you know, and I'm like, oh, these are their bumper cars. These guys are just—they're—they're they're not driving their nice cars around LA. They're <laughs> driving these little, you know, bumper cars around. It was like, oh yes, okay, these guys are living a whole other life outside of this. But um, but they were just wonderful people, nicest people in the world. It was really, um, as they say, one of my one of my great joys. Um, I wanted to ask a really quick question back on that 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 script that I had shown you. And this is the very last page of the script. It's got a handwritten uh, note about uh, a narrator line. Um, did you, uh, is this, do you recognize this handwriting? Is this yours by any chance? Uh, I don't believe that's my handwriting. I'm trying okay. to remember um, the woman's name who was uh, the production um, sort of coordinator in there with me. So I recently was looking at this episode, rewatching it, and and was just following along with the script. And it turns out that the cut that they used with the narrator, Peter Cullen, actually mm -hmm. used the word explosive. So that apparently they recorded it once with the word cataclysmic, once with the word explosive, and they wound up using that yes. uh, in the finished episode. So well, it, it was just it, interesting to see that. Yeah, it sparks my uh, my recollection that there there were occasions where, um, like you know, cataclysmic uh was was um wondered or thought to be you know that's a little that's a 25 cent word for you know preschool kids and i mean uh, kids before they go to school and stuff and was explosive you know better there were a few we come across a few of those and say well that's that's a pretty polysyllabic polysyllabic word um mm -hmm. to use um and um but but i mean funnily enough we were also adding about not talking down to kids i think that was another thing about you know voltron it was um we we weren't talking down to kids. We were talking straight out, um, mm -hmm. and and sort of the emotion of it all. It's amazing with the uh, standards and practices and everything on, on how things really went down in Go Lion and how they happened on Voltron. Well, uh, that person made a full recovery and they went back with their family and they're having a wonderful life. <laughs> we can explain away anything. That's the wonder of fantasy, though. Yes, exactly. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. So one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, you had talked about how the writers um, didn't necessarily do a one for one with with the original anime scripts. Um, they were writing their own content to fit the visuals. And I would argue that there's probably no better example in the original series of how that was done so effectively than the very first episode with the lion based characters. 
um i i was that episode they actually resequenced and i believe you had had uh produced that one as well steve um they resequenced and recontextualized a number of scenes in that show and then spliced in footage from die rugger as well um basically in the original uh, anime um we see scenes of destruction and it's actually earth being destroyed in a in a global war before the aliens come along and in voltron they recontextualize that as being an attack from zarkon on the home planet of the princess and so and and by resequencing it and having some narration around it um the earth is very much intact in voltron uh, yeah. whereas it's decimated from the very first episode in, in go lion and then by adding in some scenes to sort of uh cover for footage that had to be cut due to uh violent content um they would splice in some scenes from die rugger showing uh the top brass at the the military discussing the situation of whatever it was in die rugger but it was recontextualized to explain the situation that the the Voltron Lion people were going through in that episode, and and by resequencing the scenes, recontextualizing what was there, and adding something from Die Rugger, the end product is so radically different than the original anime, and it's so effectively done. So the you know, and, and you mean, just did such a beautiful job of explaining that. Um, I, I will, I will in the future, uh, if given the occasion, want to explain it as well as you just did. Yeah, that's exactly that. To me, was the <clears throat> the essence at the very beginning of what we knew we could do. You know, what what we realized we could do, but we weren't sure um, how it could come off. Yeah, thank you, Greg. That was beautifully said that way. But yeah, that was, um, uh, you know, and and listen, I. You know, I actually thought there would be, you know, you could do that a lot more with stuff, um, uh, you know, just just basically, you know, in a positive way, taking things out of context um, and using them to advance a storyline. And I, I imagine that Voltron could, I mean, certainly time was the greatest enemy uh, with producing those episodes, but uh, I imagine they could have taken that so much further if time had allowed. But, you know, you yeah. know and he could do anything with more time. Right. <laughs> well, you know, it's a it's a crazy thing. I, I say in the business here, you know, the only thing that buys time is money and it doesn't do a very good job of it, um, you know, and, and but um, but there were some times where, you know, I, I, I for one, um, you know, went back to Peter and, you know, I had certain episodes that I had. I don't even remember which ones they were. I said, you know, Peter, if we get time, I'd really like to go back and just, just take another shot in the editing room with this episode. I think we could really, it's just like, you know, he was, and, and Peter was great because he was, he was ready to do anything that was going to, you know, just help make this more interesting, more exciting. Um, but it was sort of like, you know, you could roll his eyes. Yeah, sure, Steve, we're going to go back and open up some episodes, to, you know, just, <laughs> just so you can smooth it out a little bit or something. But, but yeah, that was, that was really, um, once the, I mean, the really exciting thing was that once we got uh, a real process figured out and mm -hmm. we had the real talent in place and you look, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's that other thing of just, you know, it, it's just, it's the wonderful coincidence of time and place. You know, John Peterson doing that music, um, the, 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 you know, the sound effects editing, you know, all this stuff that was going the voice talent. Um, it, you just look at all the different things that happened to line up um, and yes, they were hired onto the show and, you know, it, it was, it was a business, it was a job, 
Um, but what everybody brought to it and what everybody brought in to bring to it, you know, it wasn't something like, you know, I have another job, I got to go voice this again, or, oh, yeah, I got to go, you know, knock this out. I got, it was, you know, it, they became really interested and curious about it. And, and as soon as the ratings start coming out, you, you get that sense of pride of like, hey, we're, we're doing something that, you know, people are paying attention to. And, and I think it was also a little bit, certainly from my standpoint, a little bit of that Hollywood thing of like, yeah, you guys thought we were doing this Japanese overdub thing, right? <laughs> and, um, and it was blowing the doors off other, other shows that had been doing things the way everybody in Hollywood thought they were supposed to be done. And, right. um, mm -hmm. and we didn't. And it was classic Ted. He just mm -hmm. put something together and said, I'm going to, I'm going to get everybody together to make this work. Um, and it was, you know, that was, that was part of the fun, I think, for all of us. It's like, we, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know what was going to come of it. You didn't know anything. And, um, and, and it really, um, then when you started seeing, listen, when I was driving to go see my relatives over a holiday and I was seeing kids running through the street with sticks, you know, yelling, go Voltron Fords. I was like, Oh my gosh, look at that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I was like, wow. I knew, and we were getting letters, you know, we were getting lots of letters. It was, I was one of the ones and Peter bought into it too, where, you know, we, we'd actually make the writers um, respond to some, some of the letters um, because some of the letters were really, they are the things that give the, the story depth. You know, what, what, what's the metal that Voltron's made of? Where does that metal come from? Where does the fuel come from? You know, these, these sort of wonderfully innocent questions and you sort of look around each other, you know, who cares? Um, but those kids care. Right. Um, yeah. And when you can, even as a writer, even though you might not write in what it is, when you can imbue the people making this thing with a little more depth um, of where is it coming from? How is it? Um, it translates in other ways. Um, so anyways, it was, it was just, you know, that all of that stuff, you know, to me is what, added up in the most unlikely way to um, make Voltron have the heart and soul that it did. And now four versions later and 40 years later, we're, we're still talking about it. Yeah. And we might even be talking about a movie somewhere along the line here too. I, you know, I keep wondering about that. <laughs> I, I was, I was asking about it and asking about it. Cause I, you know, listen, my business is intellectual property rights and I was tracking it through the, you know, the, the labyrinth of, you know, bigger studio stuff of who had it, what were they doing with it? Oh, it was going into turnaround, you know, it was mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, so, um, yeah. And um, it's, um, it, it's, it's been deserving of a movie. I think what's, what's interesting to me, um, if, if, and I'll have to say if um, the, um, a, a movie can really happen. Um, yes, the, 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 you know, the, the original Voltron generation will be there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think as happens, um, a whole new generation will go, wow, what is that? Um, mm -hmm. And it will compound on itself. Um, so, yeah, that would, that would be amazing. Really. Yeah. Be amazing. We just we just got done seeing this past weekend uh, Quantum Mania, right? The Ant-Man movie Quantum Mania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen that yet. And it, it just goes to show that, you know, you can take characters that come from any world in the universe and you can put them all together into a story and it works. Yeah. And it's visually appealing. Uh, it's emotionally appealing. And uh, it has a good story that, that has a lot of twists and turns to it. So yeah. if that can happen anywhere, anytime, then of course Voltron can happen. 
Yeah. So we yeah, just got to make it happen. Yeah. And it's not easy. It's really not easy. I mean, it's just so, you know, even again, just everything I've recounted about Voltron of it, it could have, it could have been dead on arrival. You know, it could have, I mean, you know, all kinds of things could have happened. The music might not have been so interesting. The voice acting might have been a little lackluster. You know, take any, you take any of those elements, any two of those elements would really, you know, make it flat. Uh, and, and, um, so, you know, but, but, you know, making a movie, when you think about, you know, all the stuff that just has to go on and just get right, it's, um, you know, you, you, you want to be good, but you also got to be lucky, um, you know, meaning the right people are available to do things at the right time. And um, timing is, is such an impact on stuff, especially with movies. You know, that's, I never, I, I was involved in one movie in my life. And um, I, um, it, it just was like, wow, it takes too long. <laughs> I, just, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, the gestation period of movies is like, you know, oh boy, at least, you know, at that time when I was more intelligent, like, you know, and, and listen, Voltron was, you know, five episodes a week. Let's get going. Come on, everybody. Let's get going. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Um, that was much more my, um, the, the tempo that I, I enjoyed. So um, you've done a lot of things with the live, live broadcasts and stage shows and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, how does that you know, compared to actually doing a, a episodic type of thing? Well, it's obviously very different. I mean, episodic, um, you know, has its own rhythm, um, but it's episodic, it got to have a pace, you know, that's sort of what gives it an energy. So, you know, you can't do a couple episodes and then sort of slow down and okay, a couple weeks, they'll do a few more. You really want to, and, and everybody realizes, you know, there is a it's a funny thing about, you know, all of us, um, uh, even in the plant world, you know, you uh, um, living things under stress actually, you know, rise up to something else, you know, and it's probably crazy to me to say, but, you know, it, there's a lot that, you know, those of us in the entertainment business like about that stress. Um, I have a lot of gray hair from my young age, but um, they're all hard earned. Um, but the, um, you know, there is a certain thing to that. It's like, yeah, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on a, I'm, I'm really on a, in a groove here, you know, we're really happening and it's sort of, you know, I, I used to call it maintain an even strain, you know, you want to sort of get going, you want to maintain an even strain and sort of keep going. But, you know, the stuff about, you know, either live shows that I've done, that's, that's a rush. I mean, when I was doing, um, you know, I did a, a, a very involved in series called live by request on A&E network where, we had, you know, big name performers come in and play, uh, perform two hours live. And it was a call in request show. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't stump the band. Um, you know, nobody, it wasn't like we were, you know, somebody could come in and say, oh, play Misty for me to, you know, Phil Collins or something like what? Um, <laughs> everybody that came on, uh, they knew the, and they were, they were also, you know, we had phone people that just were, their old job was to chat up the callers. To make sure one they weren't you know a little out of their minds or going to do be a little crazy and the other was that they knew what they wanted to talk about um but when that show when we faded up and the band started and everything was gone and two hours went by like in 10 minutes and after that show with every episode we did we did like 22 of them i think uh and it was like wow you know when it was over it was like we all knew we did something and it was live live you were hearing people real people calling in and saying you know I mean, a woman called in um, Phil Collins. I don't know if you know his song, Two Hearts. Mm -hmm. And she called in and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, did a, she said, you know, Phil, I've listened to you and, you know, my whole life. And I just want you to know, I, 
you know, I had a miscarriage and, you know, and she went this whole thing. And she said, but now I, you know, my husband, I, you know, and, and now we're having twins. Could you sing two hearts for me? Mm-hmm. And even now I'm getting chills and Phil yeah. was just like, you know, I mean, he, he couldn't even start the song, but that was the stuff that went on. We're like, it takes your breath away. It's like, wow. You know, it's... there was somebody out there that did made that connection. And we had, you know, a million, million and a half people watching. So we knew that, um, you know, it was it was really touching people and stuff. So, um, yeah. and I, you know, I've done a lot of other concerts of, you know, you know, the Rolling Stones and Mariah Carey and, you know, some heavy metal stuff. And I did um, Up in Smoke with Dr. Dre and Eminem. And those were those were recorded and edited. Um, so they had their own, um, you know, process, I'll call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, listen, you, what, what's really interesting, you deal with talent, um, you know, real talent, you know, at the end of the day, and I can, this is sort of applying more to the music side, you know, artists do things the rest of us can't or don't or won't, mm-hmm. right? They, they're, they're disconnected in ways and they, the reason they can write a story in two and a half, three minutes, the reason they can play something like other people can't or won't. And the reason we pay them handsomely is because they do things that the rest of us can't or won't. And um, in the end of the day, you know, true artists have to make art. They just have to. And we can all talk about, oh, they're so crazy. They're this, they're that. Mm-hmm. But everyone I've worked with, you know, Mariah Carey, I mean, Mick and Keith, they, they are, you know, we we see them as rock and rollers. We see her as a diva. But in all the meetings I was in with them, you know, because um, in the end of the day, I was doing uh, television or home video or web or wireless. And they knew this was going to be around longer than they were going to be alive. Mm-hmm. So that was they were going to leave something behind for for as many concerts as they did and as many people they played to the stuff I was doing and others, you know, whoever recorded concerts to that stuff was going to be around. They wanted to make sure it was going to be a lasting memory of them. So they were very serious about it and very businesslike. Um, so as, as crazy as we can think some of them are. Um, you know, the, the true artists, um, really, you know, want to be true to their art form and they want it represented well. So it was always exciting and it was also a bit pressured, you know, I mean, there was stuff on, you know, the Rolling Stone stuff. We were sending mixes back and forth back. Oh, it wasn't right. It wasn't right. You're like, oh my gosh, you know, um, up in smoke. Uh, I was in a recording studio with Dr. Dre till four in the morning and we had a, a private plane standing by to take the master to the uh, DVD replication facility in Huntsville, Alabama to make delivery. Wow. Um, and, wow. Um, but you, you know, you, you have to, in my part of the world, sometimes I'm the guy that stands between Martians and earthlings, you know, it's some um, artists, <laughs> business people. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I had business people on that particular project, you know, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Are you done yet? And then I'd have to sit with Dre and um, we were in the studio on Up in Smoke. And I, I would say, if you haven't seen it, um, go check it out. It was uh, Dr. Dre, Eminem, Snoop Dogg. It was it was the, you know, the, 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 the greatest of the time. We shot it on 35 millimeter film, which nobody wanted to do at the time. Like, oh, my God, why spend all that money on a rap hip hop, you know, production? And it was, you know, my thing was because if you shoot it on you know, regular stuff, it'll be the difference of people will say, you know, hey, can you bootleg me a copy of that? If you treat it like a film, somebody will say, I got to go buy that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it worked and it, it really worked well. In hindsight, you you uh, future proofed it as well. Yeah. I mean, I mean any, any shot on video because is now, if it's not HD, it, you don't see it on a lot of services. Yeah. It doesn't upconvert well. Yeah. Exactly. Right, yeah. 
And um, so we're in a studio and there is a, you know, I've got a private plane waiting to fly this master. It's, we're cutting it that close. Um, and um, Dre is um, looking through stuff and going, you know, wait, 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 I got I to gotta overdub this. And I'm like, you know, Dre, listen, because if, if we missed delivery, we had an exclusive with Best Buy at the time when Best Buy was, you know, selling DVDs. Um, mm -hmm. And um, if, if we missed that delivery, Dr. Dre himself was going to be on the line for all the costs of advertising that when you know was now not correct all these other things it was really substantial and anyways he looked at stuff in there and he said you know i i gotta overdub this I gotta, i'm like oh my gosh you can't you can't be doing that you know what are you what are you what are you doing and um and he he looked at me and said steve look at this just look at this scene and what what was happening is in the concert there were these pockets of people that had been lit and when everybody's you know going and you could see these people they were they were you know singing to the song but you couldn't hear them and uh, he thought we should hear them and, he was, uh, and so he, he said are you watch this and you tell me if you think i'm right and i'm like okay you're right you're right you know um and like that he had 20 people come in the studio at like three in the morning um and uh they all crammed into this uh recording booth um you know vo a vocal uh, recording room and he record and he showed him the scenes it was just certain scenes he went right through the scene just those scenes um, and um, he went through them with them, and then he looped them like five times, right? 20 people five times is suddenly 100 voices, and, and he did that, and they did it like this. It was impressive, and they wow. did the final mix down, and I, I was just like, and I walked out of the studio at like six in the morning, uh, went to the Burbank airport, got on this plane, and was just like, you know, and went to Huntsville, Alabama, and said, okay, here it is, <laughs> and um, and even now, you know, you watch it, you don't, necessarily hear it so well but i you know i'll always continue to feel it um but that those are the kind of examples where you just go oh my god oh my god and then you know uh, you go with an artist and their instincts and their sensibilities and you 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 can't go wrong and you know what i've also learned is if if you have an artist that doesn't like what you did with their stuff you got nothing right so if you don't support what they're doing and i don't mm -hmm. you know take a stand against my business people about oh my god you you went over budget you ran late on behalf of the artist then you know if you don't have the artist on board you got nothing if they don't want to talk yeah. about you know this was really cool we're really glad we did this um kind mm -hmm. of stuff you, you really don't have anything you have to have something that they feel good about too it's not you can't sort of you know rip the baby out of their out of their bosom and then say oh, i'll take it from here um, you got to be collaborative and you got to, you got to make sure that they're, they feel their art form being respected. So that's a different kind of pressure than, you know, a two hour live show or trying to deliver, you know, 125 episodes in record time or something. So, um, yeah, you have to respect their legacy and this is yeah. part, part of the whole package for them. Yeah, no, it's really true, Mark. Yeah. Which is why Greg, we, we respect the legacy of Ultron on this podcast Oh, there we go. And are. we respect all the people that have ever been involved with Voltron so that we can uh, really get to know what this true legacy of Voltron really is. Yeah, so. it's, it's amazing what you guys are doing because I, you know, I wasn't so hip to it for a while. And what, as I looked into it, it's like you're you're really carrying the mantle of this. Um, and uh, it, it's really cool. And you're just so sincere and authentic. Um, and really scratching beneath the surface on some hand, some hand, I'm sort of humbled of like, geez, Greg, I don't really remember that. Um, you know, I, I'm not really sure. And you guys are sort of right. going back and then, and even, you know, going into Indianapolis for VoltCon, 
I was like, I got to brush up on stuff. I, I don't know if I killed those brain cells or not. You know, I, I really <laughs> got to remember what, what, you know, what, I mean, there are the, the things like I've talked about tonight are there in me forever. You know, I, I, I could, you know, be on my deathbed and still recount some of this because it was so wonderful and so intense um, and so special. And, you know, just, just, you know, again, we didn't, we didn't know we were making something special, but we were trying to make something special. And just the act of trying um, spawned some things out of it that um, might not have happened otherwise. So yeah, it's it's great that you guys are keeping this legacy alive. And um, and I think that you know as as things about Voltron go on, um, I think you guys are really the ones that are sort of keeping the the flame alive. That people will say you know, the next Voltron that comes out in whatever form it comes out right. um, will be something that everybody go, wow, there's so much more to this. Um, and it's a, it's a credit to everybody. And, you know, just the whole Voltcon thing that those guys put together is so impressive. Yeah. Yep. Thanks. Thanks so much for the kind words. And, and you know, it, very kind of you to say we help to keep the, keep the, the, the thing alive, but uh, you and so many other talented people brought it to life to begin with uh, from the uh, from Toei animation delivering yeah. the original anime productions to all of the various people working at world of at or for world events productions directly or indirectly to uh, to bring the show into fruition and bring it to uh, television sets around the world and into the imaginations and memories of so many people of all ages it's uh a major tip of the hat to you and everyone else who, who well, made yeah, that thank happen. you for that. Yeah. Thanks. And it's always um amazing to me. Um, you know, all these years later, I could be in somebody's office somewhere or something. And if I just, Oh yeah, I was on Voltron, people, Voltron, you know, what, what <laughs> you know, it, it really, you know, you, you say Voltron, it, it connected. And I have to say it was something about Volcan um, that really, um, as they say, that humbled me when, you know, I, I had various people come up to me and say, you know, and it wasn't really because of me, but because of the show and the characters, you know, I had people come up to me and say, you know, this, this, you know, Voltron, like Princess Allura, I had somebody come up to me and say, Princess Allura really made me realize I could be me. Now, how old was that person when they were watching Voltron that saw a female uh, superhero character um, that they sort of felt like, wow, you know, I can be somebody, I can do something. And, um, and that's the kind of stuff you, you can't plan on doing that. Um, and, and that's, you know, that happened half a dozen times at VoltCon. I would just like, really, it, it really took me aback. I really was humbled by that to think, wow, that really, you know, I just thought we were sort of, you know, entertaining kids and they were, you know, yelling at the TV and going out and chasing each other with sticks and swords and stuff. And um, but that kind of stuff, you go, wow, that's that's really important. You know, it really um, it, it really did something. It, it is remarkable the impact that uh, each and every one of us can have on other people's lives just in, in, yeah. in ways that we cannot possibly fathom and understand. So uh for for you to have heard some of those stories that must have been really rewarding how amazing oh, it really was really was still to this day yeah we have a lot of artists out there today making things that are current you know and then there's some of those things that are reboots of the originals right mm -hmm. and i see those people remarking about it's like one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to work on a new version of that thing that I enjoyed as a kid when I was young. So 
those types of things really mean a lot to those artists who are currently working on those current projects. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's it's yeah. it's terrific to see that people are in, so inspired by things that they grew up with. It really is. And you know, you mm -hmm. don't really know what that is going to be at the time. And you don't know how it comes out the other end. You know, you don't, you, you see something at a certain age at a certain time. And then all of a sudden it could be a year or two later. It's like, Oh, you know, what about this? What about that? Yeah. It's, it's really true. Mm -hmm. It's, um, it's, it's a wonderful thing about that stuff, you know, where you can sort of, you know, touch somebody in some way that maybe even comes out later. Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, and entertainment is an industry. It's a business. There's, you know, there's the there's the nuts and bolts of making it. And of course, there's a creative aspect that goes to it, the artistry. There's also when all the pieces line up, there's a sort of magic that happens. And and for that to uh, touch the lives of so many of the people who experience it is that's something you can't engineer. Uh, it, uh, it just happens. And, and what a what an amazing thing. Yeah, no, it really is. And you, you know, listen, there's all kinds of examples of you, you know, you listen to, again, recording artists that, that, you know, have the biggest number one hit in the world. And when you listen to them say, we had, I had no idea when we were making this, that it was going to do that. You know, there, no, nobody, nobody in any um, creative endeavor can ever be sure what's going to come of it. it. They all talk about, I don't care, you know, screenwriters, uh, film directors, music, uh, you know, music artists, and you know tv producer directors nobody knows what's really going to come of something it did, then it takes on a life of its own and and you know when it when it does something that you know really makes it special and of course that's what makes entertainment so interesting and perilous and fraught with all kinds of things mm -hmm. um but yeah to your, to your point greg it's really um you know nobody can be sure about any of it you know, I, I was on the phone yesterday with somebody who was telling me, you know, oh, I'll never work, I'll never ever work. And I didn't want to be dis disrespectful. I'm like, how can you say something will never work? You know, I mean, how many people have been told something will never work and then suddenly they just keep at it? Could be 10 years later, something comes of it. But, and this this person was in the entertainment business, like, wow, that's pretty amazing. And, you know, I wanted to actually be a smarmy and say, well, now that you can be so certain about what won't work, could you just focus on telling me what will work so we can really make some money? And um, but yeah, it's, it, nobody knows what will work, and nobody can say something won't work. And that's part of the message of all of this is, you know, you have an idea, you have a passion, um, you, you got to pursue it um, because it's it's passion and perseverance is everything. Um, I don't care what what it is and what field then have to be in the entertainment field, but but whatever you are thinking about or dreaming about or envisioning, um, you have to have passion and perseverance and and, and really pursue it because eventually, eventually you can get there. You can either will it to happen or you can be at the right place at the right time and 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 wanting it to happen. Um, and it's it's a really important thing to realize um, about all of that. Are there any current passions that you're currently working on that you want to promote? I'd say nothing I can promote that anybody can go do now. I'm working on a, you know, these guys out of um, London um, were working on a tour for the fall called I Magician, um, a total playoff of, you know, iPhone, I everything, because um, he's a very, um, you know, lasers and holograms. He does stuff with um, cell phones in the audience. There's a guy named Jamie Allen. Mm. Um, he's extraordinary. Um, he's, you know, Penn and Teller 
call him um, the, the the greatest technology magician uh, they've ever seen. Um, uh-huh. And so we're just in the process of putting a U.S. tour together in the fall. So yes, I'd love everybody to look out for I'm Magician in the in the fall. Uh, we've got different bookings going on and stuff. Um, and um, but um, but I, I mean, on a pure entertainment standpoint, there's you know this this um, some of the hologram stuff. Um, is still we're we're hoping to open a hologram dinosaur project at the Houston Museum of Natural Science uh, sometime this summer. Um, nice. We've been working on that, so um, that'll that'll get interesting if we can really um, you know once we get it open. It's it's um, using a, basically hologram projections to show dinosaurs in three D. Um, oh wow! It'll it'll make yeah. a lot of stuff accessible. Um, it's you know it's doesn't it's not going to take an eighty million dollar movie um to do that so um if um that that's um now just sort of coming through the process so um those are the only two things really well they both sound fascinating thanks for yeah. telling us about them looking forward to seeing news about that yeah yeah absolutely and absolutely. is is there anything that you want to promote from a, a social media type of thing like uh where people could uh see where you're where you're posting things or anything like that? No, I pretty much uh, mm-hmm. move around on uh, as much stealth as I possibly can. <laughs> I understand. Um, so, I understand. Uh, you know, I, I I'm much happier being a person behind the scenes and then in front of the scenes. I've you can't imagine how nervous I was before you guys came on tonight. <laughs> go, oh my gosh! Um, and um, it's good. No, I, I much I've always preferred being behind the scenes. Um, it's it's um, I, I like it and um, I'm more comfortable that way. And um, as I say, I, you know, I, I work with a lot of different, very talented people. And um, they're the ones who make make magic happen literally and figuratively or artistically. So, yeah, I'm much I'm much better at um, carrying their things forward um, than than standing in front of the scene myself. But thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. A real pleasure. A real pleasure, Mark and Greg. Thanks for uh, taking good care of me and uh, all the discussion tonight. And I hope I didn't um, hope I don't make too much of an editing challenge for you to cut all this down. Into not at all. Not at all. Not at all. We really appreciated having you on. So thanks again. Yeah, no, great being with you guys. Really enjoyed it. And again, thanks for carrying the, the legend of Vol- Voltron forward and uh, keeping the legacy of Voltron alive like this. It's very cool what you're doing. So keep it up. And if there's anything I can do to help with it further, let me know. Oh, well, thank you. And we'll see you all next time on Let's Voltron! Voltron!